Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we're streaming from wonderful downtown Meridian by Boise, Idaho today, and we have four guests on the line today. I'm super excited. We are, as you can see in the title there, that we're streaming live on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. <clears throat> also, a few days later, you can catch us on all the podcast forums, including the video that will be edited on the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. And please go to that YouTube site and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We really appreciate all the viewers listening and watching and commenting. And let us know. Um, we do listen to our comments. Let us know if we can do anything better or any topics you'd like to see in the future. And as you can see today, we have four guests with us, and we are going to be talking about is your healthcare provider properly trained? Um, there's a lot of information going around the nation right now about this, and I think it's a it's a perfect topic to be talking about because one of the things is is that I think as you know, average patients and average consumers of healthcare, most people um, unfortunately will probably just look at a license and say, well. You know, so-and-so is licensed as XYZ, whether it be a pharmacist or whether it be a nurse practitioner or whether it be a doctor, and we just automatically think that that person is qualified. And it is very important that the consumer of healthcare is properly educated um, about how to be, how to find out if their healthcare provider is properly um, educated and properly trained. So with that, I'm not going to take all the time today because I'm not the expert, but we've got four experts on the line today about that. And I'm going to introduce Diana, Dr. Diana Bloom. And she is spoken on this. She has spoken on this subject uh, many times before. <clears throat> and I will go ahead and introduce her and let her introduce herself. Dr. Bloom, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, my name is uh, Diana Blum. I'm a uh, board certified neurologist and I practice here in uh, Silicon Valley, California. Um, I um, decided to kind of start speaking up publicly about um, this very important issue after several of my own patients um, were harmed by inappropriate um, care um, delivered by someone that really should have been um, supervised um, but wasn't. And right around uh, the same time, we had a bill in California called AB 890 um, passed uh, assembly and was on its way to the Senate. And that is actually how um, Rain and Natalie, who are joining us here today, um, uh, and, and we met each other <laughs> through um, advocacy work um, through a common organization that really is a grassroots organization, um, started because all across this country, physicians were seeing um, patients being harmed um, by basically inappropriate care um, that should have been supervised. So um, we basically spoke out about it um, right before the Senate vote. Unfortunately, um, the bill passed and basically the bill was allowing full practice authority, which means um, non-supervised um, the medical practice by uh, nurse practitioners um, in the state of California. Um, and we were hoping the governor was gonna veto it and he did not. So as it stands right now, um, 
is becoming law. And so we are here to educate patients to, so that they can empower themselves, advocate for themselves, and hopefully prevent um, patient harm. So great, thank you for that uh, little introduction to our topic today. And um, uh, Rain is on the line with us also. She is a RN and she was admitted to a nurse practitioner school. Is that correct, Rain? Yes. And tell us a little bit about your story of the training and why you decided to actually opt out of the school. So I went back uh, to get my psychiatric nurse practitioner and I was kind of shocked that the education was not rigorous or challenging at all. I mean, a lot of online open book tests, and I even tried to transfer to a better program, which I got in, and I started, and then they told me, even though they had told me they were going to take my credits, once they looked at everything, they said, no, these aren't up to snuff, which I can understand, but, you know, they should have told me that, so I ended up going back to the other school, and, um, I mean, they just... They ended up not setting up my contract with a hospital, and but allowed me to go there for my clinical sites. And you know, you can't do that. Like that, there's major issues there. But then I found out they were allowing me to do my hours with a physician's assistant, which is directly against New York education regulations. So then I was like, you know what? I need to, somebody needs to come in and step in and like start looking at all this because I fought with them a lot. And so I filed complaints with the accreditation agency and the Department of Education and every. The, the accreditation agency doesn't seem to want to enforce anything with these schools across the board. Um, and I'm still waiting. It's been over a year for New York education. I haven't heard a word back from them. How much nursing experience did you have before you got into this school? And are you five a, years? Five years. And five are years. you a bachelor's in nursing? Did, did you mm -hmm. did it require a bachelor's in nursing? Yes. I have my BS on. Yes. Okay. And so, um, Carl, Carl, thank you for joining us today on the show. Um, will you actually talk a little bit about, you know, you were trained as a nurse practitioner, you know, quite a few years ago, and you had many years of experience in nursing before. And from my understanding, I think when nurse practitioners, you know, originally got st started in in this field um, where they could, you know, have more authority um, over um, patients was, you know, it would be that, you know, you had to have a bachelor's in nursing usually and quite a bit of experience. And that was kind of, you know, in my experience, most of the nurse practitioners I worked with up until recently was probably that way. Um, so can you explain a little bit about your history and, and your education? Yeah. And actually, you know, I think, uh, is it rain? Rain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard your perspective and, and, uh, and I just remember going, wow, it's uh, things, you know, things have changed considerably since I graduated in 97 from University of Kentucky. And prior to that, I had had 10 years of nursing school or nursing and in, in intense uh, background with both ICU and med surge. So, you know, you, you count that's about 2000 hours of work each year. So by the time I went back to graduate school, then, you know, it's, it was a great experience. Um, you know, University of Kentucky, I remember I was uh, in emergency room rotation and I was there with six or seven other medical residents. And this ER physician was so good at, at making us go in five minutes with a patient, come out and list our differentials. And one of the concerns I have with you know, folks that are coming out now, and I've done some training, is they look at me askance when I kind of ask that question, 
give me the list of differentials. Uh, so I see that that is truly missing in a lot of these schools that, uh, that are now pushing out some of these nurse practitioners. So I, I very much support that, wow, there's got to be a minimum number of years, I would say five years, uh, before going back to school, just to get those hours in of seeing all the different experiences. Because, I mean, most physicians know we do train a lot of these residents coming out. We teach them how to do things after we've been in the field five to 10 years. Um, so it is concerning. It's actually really concerning to hear some of these nurse practitioners being put out in the field after minimal experience. And it sounds like the training. No experience. No experience. Some of them have no experience. I was in psychiatric nurse practitioner program. Probably half of the students, they had no psychiatric experience. None. They had nursing experience, but they just, because, you know, they wanted the money grab of psych. I mean, I saw that happening in the physician assistant world. And, and now to hear that it's, it's happening in the nurse practitioner realm, it's like that is gravely concerning for the safety of patients. Yeah. For, yeah. Because, they, you know, psychiatric patients, especially because they don't have a voice like regular patients, they're, they're extremely vulnerable. Right. For sure. So, Dr. Newman, can you, um, can you expand on our conversation a little bit, introduce yourself and, and, and talk about your experience in this subject? Yes, um, I'm Dr. Natalie Newman. I'm an ER board certified emergency physician. I've been practicing 25 years. And um, when I trained, and I actually received an Army scholarship to go to medical school, so I did Army time. So I've always worked with PAs. And I have to tell you that the Army PAs are exceptional, exceptionally trained. Um, the nurse practitioners and PAs um, in the Army are considered independent way before we were even talking about FPA. Um, in any case, um, I was not around in They were not part of my training. There were no programs where they were in the ER. So I was not exposed to them until I got out of the Army, um, except when they were in the nursing realm something, but never in emergency medicine. Um, 2013, well, first of all, let me say that I started practicing. Um, I now work as a traveling ER physician, local tenants or independent contractor, and I've been doing that since 2008. And I worked in New York and I worked in North Carolina, and I was just seeing a change. Um, Carl, is that the name? I'm yes. Sorry. Okay. Yes. So, so the family I was around were more from this generation before. So they had had tons of RN experience. And I mean, some of them had maybe 15, 20 years before they got their NP. So they kind of knew what questions to ask. And what one of the things that keeps getting skipped over is that the PAs came out of a very distinct program. They came out of the Navy as medical corps and, um, or as Navy corpsmen. And there were four of them and they started a program in 1965 at Duke University and those became the first PAs. Then NPs have a totally different history. How physicians came into the realm of training NPs, there is no transition. It just kind of appeared on the horizon. So we used the only model we knew, which was the medical model, the model we used for PAs, residents, and medical students. The problem with nursing is a completely different discipline. It took me a while to understand when I was speaking in my language why some NPs weren't understanding the seasoned RNs understood a lot of what I was saying. If I said I need a differential, they understood. They've been practicing long enough. There is a lot of stuff you pick up at the bedside. So there's a lot of knowledge they pick up. 
um, but they were still functioning in a nursing realm. And um, it, there just didn't really seem to be any conflict because there was no standard. If they were in the ER working with the residents, they became, you know, they did the suturing, they did procedures, um, certain mm -hmm. procedures like that. Today, they don't, I don't know. I was working with MPs who didn't suture. I was working with MPs who didn't know what a differential diagnosis was. I didn't know all this was going on. All I know is that in my contract, like most ER docs in the United States, we are mandated to supervise these MPs, whether or not they're qualified. I did not like that on my license. So I stopped supervising in 2013, way before I became physician for patient, a member of a physician for patient protection or way before it existed. It's only that I found out later about the degree mills and all of the other stuff that complicated the picture. So um, <clears throat> when I saw that, I'm a big believer in that these are three distinct different disciplines that are complementary to each other, but they are not replaceable for each other. And that's where the problem for me begins. There's, there's no guidance anywhere that states that if you've been practicing as an NP for so many years, you can now practice as a physician. There's no guidance that has made that a fact. That's just become um, a way of thinking with no one really explaining why that is. And I just don't believe that is. I think if you're gonna practice independently, what in every other, um, for all intended purposes is medicine, then you need to go to medical school and do a residency and get a medical license. It doesn't mean that people can't contribute to your education. The first suture I ever did, I was taught by a PA, but my training and education as a physician came from physicians, okay? So, but it doesn't mean cannot add to my education who have more expertise. I did actually learn how to do a lot of nursing things because I went to, you know, I went to nurses. I felt that I would work in areas where they might come to me when nurses can't do something, they come to the physician. So I had great, you're talking about RNs who've been practicing for decades and I just went to one and I said, I don't know anything about IVs. I don't know how to do this, I don't know how to do that. And she taught me everything I know that I still do today. I know how to hang a drip. I know how to mix drugs. I know how to put in IVs or NG2s. I still do it. Um, and a nurse, you know, it's a nursing skill. Um, and she made me good at it. So they do contribute. And um, we contribute to theirs. I don't like the fact that there's no structure. We're teaching them in a medical model. We're teaching nurses who are trained in a nursing model how to practice medicine. I have a problem with that. So, um, Dr. Bloom, back to you. Um, I, I think that, you know, you mentioned um, before that this is largely financial because a lot of the healthcare entities are hiring nurse practitioners um, and letting them do things that traditionally doctors have done. And you believe that, that there's just a big financial incentive, incentive for these healthcare entities. Is, can you expand on that? Absolutely. <clears throat> I think that over the last uh, probably 30 to 40 years, but certainly it got accelerated over the last 10 years. And um, I want to believe that the intentions were good. Um, you know, the intentions, or at least how it's being uh, promoted, is to improve access to care, right? And there's a lot of uh, uh, rural areas that really have no access to physicians, or so we are told, um, because I think the the actual story is a little bit more complicated than that, and um, and that well, we've got this uh, workforce that can be trained, and and you know, at the end of the day, a lot of things um, are not that complicated, you know, and that is how um, 
the lobbying groups have um, convinced our politicians to basically legislate away the practice of medicine, essentially lowering the standard of care. But it is to for that is for having a workforce that can follow algorithms that, you know, in the world of tech, and I'm in the middle of it here in Silicon Valley, everything is about the future of, um, you know, telehealth and, and um, improving uh, access through um, technology and at the end of the day, um, there is no um, emphasis on the actual doctor-patient relationship. And I think if you look around what's happening in the middle of a pandemic, if we actually had trust in that doctor-patient relationship, all across the board, I think our outcomes would be um, much different. Um, but corporatization of medicine is basically the takeover of Hippocratic Oath Medicine, where the patient is at the center and the motto is do no harm. Um, and that's really how we are taught to practice. Um, that goes away. And so when uh, physicians are bought out by big groups and get consolidated into that, um, they become employees. And so, you know, the priorities become very different. You start prioritizing keeping your job and, and not so much the patient in front of you. And that it at the end of the day, it all comes back to money. Um, so if you look at uh, some of the what's happening in the news, right, there's the CVS Minute Clinics and Walgreens and Amazon and all of that kind of what sounds great on paper um, with expanding access to care, but what is that care? I mean, that's really what we're here to talk about is what kind of care are we discussing? Now, what we know is that as um, we are starting to see the data is these non-physicians and I, I'm, we kind of group them in just calling it non-physicians because it, there's nurse practitioners, there's uh, physician assistants, there, you know, a lot of different, um, entities are now just using the word doctor. And so patients get confused. If someone introduces and says, I'm Dr. So-and-so, they just assume they're a physician. That's certainly what happened with my patients. Um, you know, they assumed they were seeing a physician. They didn't know better. Um, and and so we're seeing overprescribing, um, especially of opiates. There's data on that. We're seeing um, uh, inappropriate referrals and too much testing, obviously raising our um, healthcare costs. So the the trickle down impact is quite quite great, um, both on our economy and then for me, it's really about human life. It's when we um, no longer prioritize what is best for the patient. At the end of the day, we are all patients. You know, I'm I'm speaking out because I have children and I want to make sure that, you know, they, they have doctor, physicians who are well-trained um, and put their interests, their medical interests first, um, because that's the only way to practice medicine. And when it's not, look around, you can see what's happening. Yeah, thank you for that insight. And, you know, one of the things that I've seen quite often is the term doctor, and it's been diluted totally, in my opinion. Um, when I first got out of pharmacy school, I graduated in 1994. I was one of the last graduating classes of the non-PharmD, the non-doctor pharmacist. And I got to be really honest with you. I, and I tell a lot of doctors this, I have a hard time calling pharmacists doctors. Um, I think there's really three people that should be called doctors and that's if you went to a medical school, a dental school or a veterinarian school. Those are really all the three doctors 
besides a PhD, I guess they've earned that. But it does concern me a little bit that, you know, and I still, I'm a professor at the University of Washington and I still get emails, Dr. Needham. It's like, no, I'm not doctor. I am a pharmacist and we're all pharmacists and we're not, even if we did go to a doctor's school. So anyway, and I think what's happened with a lot of these programs is, and I went to my dean before I graduated and said, hey, am I going to be obsolete in 20 years because I don't have a doctor of pharmacy? And this is basically what the dean told us. And this is a dean of a, you know, of a well-established top five pharmacy school in the nation at the time at University of Washington. And he says, actually, um, I'm really against it. We just don't want to be the last school to accept it. And really what we're doing is we're just extending the extending the degree out a little bit longer so you have a, a year longer to finish it and so we're diluting it a little bit and charging you graduate tuition so and honestly i think that's a little bit of the truth now rain can you talk about the program you were in was that a doctor of nursing program because i think in order to be an np now you have to be a doctor of nursing is that correct so no you don't need to get your doctorate they are pushing okay. for it and i personally no, I was not going to go back and get spent and sink myself into six figures of debt when there's still a master's option because yeah, they're, they're charging you doctorate tuition. Now, if this, if this degree gave me more clinical hours, if it gave me more science, if it gave me more, absolutely. But that's not what these degrees are doing. And it's like, why would I do that when, you know, I can get an, I can get a master's. So it was, it was, a, it's an MSN program, but they are pushing, it's not required yet. That's like a rumor you know, it takes a while for them to require anything, but, you know, they're phasing out the master's programs, but, you know, I personally just don't see, uh, yeah, unless they, yeah. unless they revamp it and make it, you know, like put some hardcore sciences. Why aren't we taking gross anatomy? Why aren't we, you know, like we don't need more. Th I don't need to write another 20 page paper on theory. Yeah. Wow. So it, just yeah, one, go ahead, um, please. I was reading the latest statistic was that only 15% of the doctorate programs are actually clinical. Right. So most 85%, sorry. No. I said, who even knows because none of this is standardized. That's the other problem. Well, Mary Munder, she actually wrote it in a paper, her intent. Um, I don't know, um, Sean, if you know who Mary Mundiger is, but she's kind of like the godmother of the nurse practitioner program. She developed a um, won it. She's done a lot um, at Columbia University in New York. And she um, did a paper and her intent was that they be clinical. That was her intent right. in the early 90s. That's not how it ended up. 85% of them were non-clinical doctorates of nursing practice. Right. So, well, Carl, could, Yeah, go please, ahead, Sean. Please, no, please comment, Carl's going to ask you to. Yeah. So I, I was going to interject, you know, as part of my story too is you know, I left the medical system as it is now back in 2006 because I was getting exhausted with in this urgent emergent care system of seeing 35 to 40 patients. You don't have time to think about differentials when you're seeing that many. And I was appalled when I realized, I think when I looked at the productivity, I was probably making 700, 800,000 for this big system. And, and, you know, just making a fraction of that. And so for me, yep. it was so refreshing to step away 
I, I never ever imagined myself being autonomous or starting my own practice, but the only way that I could see myself doing it was stepping out of the sickness model, um, where now at least I get to spend 50, 60 minutes with my patients. I get to go through all those lists of things to think about and, and then still have available consultations readily available. Um, but it's a it's a problem I would say system wide with what we've developed throughout the nation too. That's created this. I mean, I I think about my physician friends that I've tried to say there really is life outside of that big system, but they're fearful of stepping out and kind of going back into practice for themselves because in so many ways the administrative systems have just kind of coddled them and said, hey, oh, we'll take care of everything for you. And that's creating problems. And and that's a great segue to, Dr. Bloom, hold your thought for just one second, okay? Because that's a great segue. We have a question on Facebook from Dr. Jared um, Wallen. He is actually a urologist in, in Florida. And he asked, do you see private practices and small business physicians as a solution to the corporatization of America, to the corporatization of medicine we are seeing? Given that employees, this is exactly what Carl is talking about. Given that employees are silenced, handcuffed, and at the mercy of corporate hospitals, how do we as physicians achieve this when laws make private practice disadvantaged compared to employed employed physicians for billing and revenue. Medicine is already more complex than any other business. Our private practice and breaking free from corporations and direct care. Uh, I can't read the rest of it here. I, it kind of cut off. Anyway, I think you get the point is kind of what Carl was saying is that it's a system problem and the system perpetuates itself and they know the only way they can keep turning all these patients over 35, 40 patients a day is to hire anybody that's licensed um, in order to do this. And that seems like where it's going. And in order to do that, because they're not making any money on this anymore, they have to pay people less and have less training. Um, Dr. Bloom, will you comment on that? Yeah, no, this is this has been um, many years in the making and really it is the laws that are passed and we need to take a step back and really evaluate how are these laws passed and who is pushing for these laws. And when I say that things just got fueled in the last 10 years, it really has been after the Affordable Care Act, where um, almost $200 million was allotted for these, essentially the degree mills that we're seeing to die. And again, even if maybe the intentions were good in, in terms of improving access. At some point, we have to face the facts that there are unintended consequences. People are getting harmed. And these are human beings. These are human lives. This is your, you know, brother, sister, father, mother. And um, without proper intervention right now. So for example, the High Tech Act, right? Everyone has to go on EMR. In one way, it's, it was supposed to be good for um, interoperability, right? If you see a doctor here, then a doctor here who sees them can have access to the same records and so it improves the flow of information. But that's not the reality of what actually happened. Or HIPAA, HIPAA is supposed to protect privacy of the patient, but patients don't realize when they sign that HIPAA form, they're literally signing away their data so that it can be, you know, 
between insurance companies and our government and every third party and you name it, except the doctor and the patient, that's when HIPAA gets into the problem is that suddenly I have to worry as an independent doctor, you know, am I violating HIPAA by talking to a doctor? Am I talking to a doctor about a patient? Did I have a consent? It, if I'm doing what's in the best interest of my patient, I shouldn't have to worry about, did I have a signed HIPAA? But when, when HIPAA is, is implemented, it really is for the transfer of um, money, insurance, billing, all of that it has nothing to do with actually protecting patient privacy. So laws are, and AB 890 is a perfect example. Um, it's like the um, necessary step to um, the next set of laws. And when you look at who is um, pushing for those laws, and this, this I have to say, there was a big uh, flashlight that was shined this week on in our own state with Governor Newsom and and the big uh, French laundry dinner that he had with the you know California Medical Association CEO. Um, this is how laws are being made. The the California Medical Association of who I resigned from it this year um, are supposed to be protecting physicians. Are supposed to be you know advocating for you know reducing patient harm, but nothing was done to protect patients from AB 890, despite so many efforts from us physicians trying to educate politicians. So then you have to step back. Why are these laws getting passed? Well, who's behind it? The lobbying money behind this, physicians cannot compete with big pharma, big hospitals, uh, PBMs, you know, all the entities that are in the middle of that doctor-patient relationship, sucking every dollar, every, if you look at, um, I don't know if you've seen that chart going around, but um, doctors represent, physician salaries represent about 7% of entire healthcare costs. And yet we are often blamed, and I can assure you that that whole article that came out with the dinner, that it's going to be blamed on doctors because it was the California Medical Association. Well, guess what? They don't actually represent practicing physicians like me. That's why I resigned from them, because I didn't feel that the interest of what was really important for me taking care of my patient was actually being advocated there. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, <laughs> but that, absolutely. That's also, why we're, that's also why we're here and we're speaking up because the American, uh, the AANP, the, the equivalent, I guess, organization for their nurse practitioners is advocating for this legislation and, and, and obviously have very big powers behind them lobbying money that we physicians individually cannot compete with. Um, and I'm hoping people like Rain and Carl and nurse practitioners that understand the difference and, and really care about doing what's right for the patient start really speaking up and holding their organizations accountable just like I'm holding CMA and AMA accountable today. Well, and I can say um, this is I, I agree with with what you're saying, Dr. Bloom, and what really needs to happen is, you know, big pharma, insurance companies, and honestly, most big healthcare entities as an entity, not as individuals, but as an entity, they really don't care about patients at all. And they are all in cahoots together. It's like a cartel. And big pharma, the insurance companies, and the big healthcare entities are in cahoots together. And what really needs to happen is, you know, physicians and healthcare practitioners in general that work on the team, we need to take healthcare back. And and it it you know it's got to be individualized again because what's working now is or what's happening now is not 
really sustainable and it's not really good for patient care and we've seen care over the last 10 years accessibility go down price skyrocket why is that well um, it's because you know, corporate medicine is what's in charge and not individuals anymore. So I, I thank you guys for coming on and just educating and empowering um, our listeners and viewers on this subject. So, well, Sean, if, could I answer that uh, position? Go ahead, Carl, please. Question? Yeah. Yep. Um, so direct primary care, I mean, that's really what I stumbled into in 2015, was able to grab Dr. Shaw, who you know out of uh, the big system here locally. Um, and for that position in Florida, there's all kinds of resources for him to look at to do doing direct primary care. It really, I mean, I can look back on 2015 when we transitioned to that, and I'm never going back into the insurance model after making that transition. And if he's looking at wanting to get out and do that, I would say, yes, do it. Yeah, thank you for that uh for encouraging him he's uh he needs a lot of encouragement but i think that's what he's already done carl so that's okay. awesome okay. so rain i think you're probably the best one to answer this question that the um the term diploma mill has came out at least twice maybe three times explain what a diploma mill is yeah so I, diploma mills are basically they don't necessarily have to be all online, but a lot of the online schools, you know, kind of get labeled, but there are good online programs, but usually, you know, people like to think they're 100% online, um, but that's not always necessarily the case. You can have a brick and mortar school that's a diploma mill. They're admitting people no experience. There's no admission criteria. Um, the, the actual classes are not that rigorous. You know, uh, I personally experienced online open book tests. And, you know, no, no proctor. You basically just learn to quickly learn, you know, look stuff up. Um, one of the other thing is that they're doing is that they don't find preceptors. So students are frantically looking to find preceptors and there's no oversight to it. You know, oftentimes they'll just shadow or, you know, or like in my case, you go and you find somebody that isn't even that's against your state regulations because nobody's nobody's telling you this. Um, some of the other things they do is. There seems to be a lot of, you know, when students have issues, if they complain, you know, they don't like a test or whatever, these schools just, okay, well, we'll, we'll get rid of that test or, okay, if you guys misbehave, because I mean, I've seen actual disciplinary reports where other, you know, in my opinion, and probably a lot of people's opinions, they shouldn't still be in the program because for falsifying hours, you know, doing all kinds of things like this just breeds of culture of people with a lack of integrity you know, and it is also creating a very large demographic of people that don't want this to end because they know that these schools are the only way they could become a nurse practitioner. So now you have this large army of people that are, quite frankly, not smart enough to probably be even in these roles, but they're going to fight to the death to keep this around and deny it because they know they could never go to one of those real schools. Like I got into a really good program. I could go do that. I know there's other things I can go do. This isn't my lifeline. Um, you know, and I also can't sleep at night, like thinking how in the world am I going to get done with school and take care of people if I'm not properly educated? Um, like yeah. my kid, for example, and I thought this was, you know, I, I couldn't believe that nobody had an issue with this. I would be licensed to treat the lifespan for psychiatric disorders. So children to geriatrics, the school does not require, they don't say, okay, you need to go do a hundred hours in, in geriatrics, a hundred in pediatrics. They said, go, just go do your clinical hours. Now 
pediatric psych hours are extremely hard to find because nobody's doing it. So people are graduating. I would have been one of those people because I wouldn't have been able to find those hours. You know, when you just want to get done. And I'm sorry, I'm not even a mother, but I can't even imagine like, you know, okay, I got done with school, I'm licensed. I probably wouldn't have treated children, but maybe I would. This is just not okay. Like, and nobody, the, the bigger problem is the people that should be caring about this don't. Like, it's yeah. so a public safety issue. Yeah, and, and one of the one of the things I don't like about this whole topic, and it's not just NP school. I mean, pharmacy schools are definitely guilty of it, and of course, that's personal to me because I know about it um, so personally. But um, it really, what it does, Rain, is it dilutes the degree mm-hmm. of those nurse practitioners like Carl that yeah. have been through a lot of training. And I, I'm just going to speak on pharmacy school. So I think in a lot of ways. It's peer numbers because, you know, there was a cry 10, 15, 20 years ago that there's a huge shortage of healthcare practitioners. Now, my argument is the system is inefficient. There wasn't really a shortage of healthcare practitioners. And when you see what Carl has done with his direct primary care and how efficient a direct primary care system is, and I think you just look at how inefficient a regular you know, a regular big corporate system is, and that's really, so it's not necessarily a shortage necessarily, it's just inefficiency. So that being said, you know, 20 years ago, they started pumping out more more students in pharmacy. They, you know, the schools in Washington basically doubled their enrollment. When I was there, it was only 70 people um, would get into each school. There's two schools in Washington state now, um, and there was then too. They basically doubled their enrollment. And then now there's private schools all over the nation. So there are way more many, there are, you know, probably four times as many pharmacists graduating as when I graduated in 1994. So what that really does, the schools want to be full. I mean, you know, they have to be full. That That's what they do. They make money on tuition. So they actually admit students that were, would not have been admitted 25 years ago. They wouldn't have even been accepted. And so they diluted the pool because there's so many um, um, slots open. And I think, you know, we got a viewer on Facebook that commented, one school training mental health NPs has been rumored to have admitted 800 students this year. Um, there's no way that they can find clinical training for that many people in a year. I mean, that that does sound like, you know, it would be pretty impossible to, to clinically train these. Now, if, you know, and I want Dr. Newman's opinion on this um, because, you know, I think in some ways maybe medical schools are a little bit guilty of this because, um, I mean, there's a medical school in the Caribbean that admits 400 students a year, if I, if I remember right. Um, and, you know, there's medical – now in Washington State, there's – two more medical schools than there were 20 years ago. So we're graduating a lot more physicians also. So Dr. Newman, how are we guaranteeing that these physicians are properly trained? Well, first of all, um, the schools that are overseas have to follow a very rigorous process to be approved uh, for those students to come to the United States and, and once they graduate the medical school and start residency. If they don't follow that, if the school, you can have a million medical schools. We're not responsible for what's overseas. Oceana is the one that's a medical school that um, a lot of midla, um, well, nurse practitioners and PAs go to, um, go to MD route. Um, I think it's a mistake. They, I think they've admitted one student in the United States, you know. But um, in any case, these students, these schools have to follow rigorous um, guidelines, very rigorous. 
we don't meet the standards. Okay. And those students have to come to the United States and start all over. They have to do their pre-med courses. They have to go to medical school. They have to take all the exams we took. They're basically starting over. So those four years they spent were wasted. You can't just walk into America and start a residency. You have to follow the previous standards that get you there. That has remained consistent. Now, medical schools are increasing because they were trying to fill the need. The problem was is that they weren't increasing um, residency programs which stopped in 1996, a cap was placed by um, the Centers for Medicare and no more residencies were opened after 1996. So the ones that did open were either paid for by, by hospitals themselves or CMGs, corporate medical groups. Now, corporate medical groups is part of corporate medicine. And it's a, we don't want doctors trained in those programs, but if they meet all the standards for residency, they can do it. But they're creating these models, these, um, you know, the ones who are going to fit what we don't want to fit, you know, that's making um, it such a, a, a business. That's what they're going to be graduating from residency. So I'm not worried about the medical schools. We have one accrediting agency um, over all medical schools, the LCME. That remains the same and everybody has to meet that standard. Certain schools overseas like Ross University, University of Antigua, Antigua there's just a list of them. Um, they've met the standards that meet the US Department of Education guidelines, okay, and they've been approved. Any other ones are irrelevant and if someone tries to come here, they have to begin from scratch, okay? So that has remained consistent and I'm not worried about medical education. I'm worried about, um, the fact that we're watering down, that we're not, you know, the physician, Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act was a bill that was a bipartisan bill that was started in 2017. And that provided um, GME dollars to open 5,000 or 3,000 residencies over five years, so 15,000 residencies. A lot of physicians, a lot of people didn't even know about it. And, you know, we're still getting it out there. Now it's the Residency Act of 2019. Um, but it's gained more popularity. And I still ask people to have your um, legislator support that bill because that will make a difference. And then there are assistant physician programs, which are different from physician assistant that was started in Missouri was the first program by an orthopedic physician who thought it was an absolute crime that all these graduated medical students could not get into a residency because there was a bottleneck. There were too many medical students, not enough residencies, 8,000 medical students a year. That didn't happen when I was training at all. And I graduated um, from um, residency in 99, but um, I graduated from medical school in 95 and they closed the residencies or capped them in the year after I graduated medical school. So I just missed it, you know? And I yeah. and so I just think there are other options that are better. If you wanna fill a position gap, fill it with a position. No, nothing else will suffice. But I do wanna follow on something really quickly and then I'll stop on what Rain said about the degree mills. The full practice authority states, okay, um, where they have independent practice. Here's what bothers me from a conscience standpoint. Once those laws were passed, nobody, no regulatory body, no nursing body, no legislative body has followed up to see if the quality of care that was promised prior to the passage of FPA in those states has measured up. They simply wash their hands of it and let it go. Why does that bother me? Because the degree mill graduates are in those states and they are not being filtered out. So we don't know what the quality of care. So in our bill, AB 890, which was um, sponsored by a dentist okay, and not supported by any physician group, 
I've asked him that multi, multiple times. I worked in his district. He completely ignores me. He wants nothing to do with me. But, um, um, but it bothers me a lot because I feel that if you're going to pass a bill, you have a responsibility to follow up because it's affecting patients. So let's see how this works. Arizona's had it for years. Um, Oregon's had it for years. Washington. Why haven't at least those states has someone followed up to? You can check malpractice data. You can check ER. There's different data you can use to follow up to see what the statistics are. No one's done that. There's just this presumption that the quality of care is what they said it is. And that's not a good litmus test. That's a lousy litmus test. That bothers me a lot. But it's you being used to pass more of the laws in more states. Hey, we have it in 23 states, so it must be okay. So pass it in this state. It's not okay. It's the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It just means nobody bothered to look. I just wanted that said. No, please. Thank you. And, and, and if, if, oh. if I can just add to that, and when we as individual physicians are filing these complaints, they're all internal investigations. They don't go anywhere. I cannot follow up on the complaint that I you know, made um, for my patients because it's all private. And then if you want to go to a um, an entity like the Board of Nursing, well, in California, they're under fraud investigation. So, and then the medical board doesn't want to investigate. So like, what kind of legal recourse does the patient have when they're harmed? You know, and so it really is a patient safety issue. This is, you know, the primary reason we're here um, is to protect our patients. So, Carl, being in Washington State where you have full practice authority, um, can you comment on uh, what Dr. Um, Newman was talking about as far as the nursing boards following up with quality? Do you, do you know any statistics like that at all? You know, I, I don't. And it's it actually, you know, I'm sitting there going, wow, that's appalling that none of that data has been followed because, you know, it's like I have to protect my own integrity as well. And so, um, you know, if I know that there's folks out there practicing that really have no business practicing, period, then they shouldn't be doing it. Um, so I'd be curious. I'd be, you know, it's like, why hasn't that been done? <clears throat> it's just good objective data that we all need to have in all the states. So I'd be very much in support of it. Yeah. And then, Carl, another question. So it sounds like Dr. Newman says one of the ways that physicians separate themselves is with their residency program. So um, did you feel that when you graduated um, from your program that you were ready to practice? And and maybe, you know, the answer is, um, you know, a residency for nurse practitioners. Is that something that maybe should be added? Uh, did I feel like I was ready to practice independently? Is that the question? Or correct. That is correct. Uh, and there's no way. No, I mean, that's why I picked a good, solid uh, group that I could kind of work under, be with, um, consult with, I mean, collaborate, all those things. It, again, when I started out, <clears throat> I knew that I did not know nearly what I needed to know. So I had a great group of physicians that I worked with for solid, solid, uh, I want to say almost 10 years. So, yeah. So maybe, Rain, maybe one of the answers to these nurse practitioner schools is could they have a, a you know, before they get their license, maybe a mandatory residency program? Would would that help maybe with some of the um, proper education and training? I mean, I'm sure that would help if it was set up appropriately, but it doesn't seem if that nursing can set up anything appropriately. Uh, how they, you're still going to have all these nurses with no nursing experience to, to build off of. And going back to what Natalie, Dr. Newman was saying, 
about uh, full practice states, because I've been on these nurse practitioner message boards for over a year and a half. I mean, I've been thrown out of a lot of them since I've become vocal, but I can tell you a lot of people go to nurse, they will post, oh, I'm in, you know, school, I'm going to start a practice, I'm moving, or I live in an FPA state, or I'm going to move to one of them, and they want to start practices right out of school with little to no nursing experience, and they can do that. Legally, guess what? They can do that until they hurt somebody or they hurt a few people because, you know, we have seen in some um, news stories, they are getting shut down, but it's going to take deaths. Like, this shouldn't be happening. I can't. You know, I can't do that. I try to go and open the most popular clinics are the med spas. Okay, they're very- And that's the other thing. Okay, that's the other thing. There's such a shortage and we need all these nurse practitioners to fill a shortage. They're all opening med spas that they want to do Botox. And it's like, no, yeah, why aren't you working? Yeah, You're supposed to be in primary care. I don't know any underserved people who need Botox at this point. <laughs> yeah, and they'll, they'll even say, oh, there's so much to know with primary care. So, I mean, yeah, it's really easy to go do Botox. or, but, I mean, but fillers is even a skill. They're probably not even that good at it. I mean, I would have a plastic surgeon if I was going to yeah. do that because it's your face. But they're not – it's not being utilized the, the way that, you know, that – these agencies are saying, oh, but this is what we're doing and this is what we need all them for. Yeah. It's so, all smoke and mirrors. Right. And, and here's one of the arguments, speaking of plastic surgeon and, and fillers, you know, a lot of plastic surgeons will, you know, that do have med type spas, they will um, delegate Botox and fillers to a nurse. And right. I think, you know, you I can be an RN. Right. And many nurses do, do a it. great job. And the plastic surgeon oversees that. I get that. So, so, but here's, so here's the question. And I, I'm a capitalist and, and I understand that most, I, anything runs around money. I also, I also am a big supporter of patient care. There's no doubt about it. Quality is very, very important and the most important. But um, what is the argument that maybe a, you know, cause let's, let's, you know, help me out here with a, a routine and maybe not a necessarily a routine ER like Dr. Newman's in, but a routine, um, you know, primary care doctor that sees, is it necessary for a doctor that has eight years of school and four years of residency to see a, a patient that comes in with athlete's foot? I mean, because, you know, that's a common complaint, right? And is it necessary? Is it a necessary use of resources to have a doctor that's been trained for 12 years to treat a patient with athlete's foot that could largely be treated with chlortrimazole cream over the counter? So, you know, can Dr. Bloom, can you expand on that? Uh, absolutely. Um, if I could just circle back to what. No, you're there. Okay, sorry. Um, uh, if I can just expand on one thing, um, with the uh, medical school, abroad education, everything, everyone who applies for residency still has to pass the USMLE, steps one, two, and three. So there is standardization, and you have to prove that your education has been adequate to meet a certain level. So th that just does not exist right now for um, non-physicians where there's a standard of care that allows you that baseline to then go on and actually be supervised in a residency program. So I, I think that's an important point. Um, in terms of the basic, the basic things, I think that the one thing that we learn in medical school is you don't know what you don't know. And I think it goes to that 
uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know how, how many people are familiar with that, but early on in our education, like when I first started as a neurology resident um, in that first year, I thought I knew everything. I finished medical school, I passed my boards, I saw my first patients and I went through my, you know, and then it was my senior resident who would point out, well, did you think about X, Y, and Z? So the common presentation that I thought I knew, it was, I was wrong basically. So it took being supervised, being taught so that the patient remains safe to know what I didn't know. And then it, the Dunning-Kruger effect is your confidence early on when you really don't know much is really high. That's when you're most dangerous. And then most residents kind of get this low peak midway through their training somewhere in their like second or third year where they're like, am I ever going to learn all of this? I I, I, <laughs> there's so much I don't know. And it, it's like, Wow. And then by the time you're slowly graduating, you realize, okay, I've seen the atypical presentations. I've seen the typical presentation. I, I know what I'm doing. And that is probably very similar to what Carl is saying, 15 years, 10 years into doing the same thing, seeing all the different varieties, you know, even, I mean, I don't want to say athletes, but, but there's atypical presentations that you think in a primary care setting, maybe, oh, it's just a UTI, but actually it's bladder cancer. You know, you just don't know unless you have the proper training. So I think with the proper training, with the proper supervision for however, and it's, it's you know, it depends also on the person, right? And who's training you. And so I think if someone has been working under a physician and that physician feels comfortable with X, Y, and Z, you know what to do. I'm letting you do X, Y, and Z by yourself. Sure. But that's not what's happening, right? So mm -hmm. that's the biggest issue is all this confidence, but nothing to back it up. And then mistakes happen. Okay. Yeah, that's great. This has been just a lot of great information on this episode. I appreciate it. So we're going to go, we're going to wrap our episode up. We're going to go with a quick round robin. So Dr. Bloom, since you've got the floor, I'm going to start with you. What, what fires you up about what you're doing? My kids, my my biggest um, <laughs> fear came true over the pandemic. My daughter started binge watching Grey's Anatomy and told me she wants to be a doctor and my heart sank. I was like, no, you cannot go into medicine because I'm telling you, medicine is not a healthy place for a physician. We have no voice. And so she's like, well, but fix it then. <laughs> so here I am fixing it because I do feel if patients and doctors really get together and advocate for what is right, which is restoring the trust in our doctor-patient relationship, we can fix things. We must. We have no choice. Great. Thank you for advocating. So, Rain, you're up next. What fires you up? What fires you up about what you're doing? Well, I think when I started looking at this from a patient perspective, I mean, because we all can be patients, like, I'm truly terrified if something were to happen to me and I was incapacitated and ended up in a hospital or an ER and, you know, like, and got under the care of one of these not properly educated or supervised, what could possibly happen to me or my loved one before I got there. But the other thing is, I think within nursing, there's a culture that needs to be broken because people are terrified to talk about this and it's just gonna keep continuing. And I think, like I said before, we're creating this army of people that truly have no business being in these positions. And that's very dangerous because, you know, like, Carl said he knew coming out of school, no, no way. But now, you know, now you are working independently. You have decades of experience and you know your limitations. These people, I mean, they'll post on message boards. 
I don't need to talk to the doctors. The doctors are, I mean, they have these like full-blown delusions at times. And that's very scary because they're going to finish their very easy program. And guess what? I'll tell you, because when you get A's in something, right, it makes you feel good, right? We all get A's. It, but it also makes you think you know something. Yeah. They're artificially creating that we know things like, and that's what I realized. I'm like, okay, wait, I got A's in these classes. And I'm like, but you didn't learn anything because they were online open book. There was no, you know, impetus to really, truly learn something. You weren't challenged, but you think you did. And that's right. dangerous. Right. Right. We're so turning that loose on society. So that's kind of what gets keeps me as passionate about it as I am. That, awesome. And I also want to leave something better than how I found it. I don't want to awesome. be, because a lot of nurses are like, well, this is just how it is. And I'm like, but it's not right. So Dr. Newman, let's go you. What fires you up? Um, patients. I mean, I, when I went into medicine, I loved anatomy and physiology, and I wanted to see it in the human body. So I really didn't go in because I loved patients or had some life-changing event that made me want to be a doctor. That was not it at all. But somewhere along the way in my training, um, I humanized the people, so to speak. And I realized that here, the, and I'm ER, so these people are bringing their kids and their mother and father and the person they love, the most valuable person. I try not to get emotional when I talk about this part, but these people don't know me, but they're bringing their most valued possession um, and they're handing them to me and they're at, telling me, I want you to take care of me and I'm trusting that you know how to do it because you have that title and you have that role. And that I learned on those people. They were my guinea pigs. That's how I became good at what I did because I, I they allowed me to do this. They permitted me. And so to give back to them, I have to give them the best that I am. And we're not giving them the best when we don't do right by them. And so that's what drives me is that you have an ethical and moral responsibility to do what's right to those patients because they have that expectation or don't take on this role. Awesome, Dr. Newman. Thank you for standing up like that. And Carl, we're going to end up with you. We know you're a patient advocate and you've been um, great at piping in today. Um, all you guys have, it's been a great, great show with uh, expert opinion. So I really appreciate everybody for being on. So Carl, what fires you up about this subject? You know, I, I'm just passionate about wellness, prevention, reversing diabetes in my patients, getting the time to spend with them. I, I would say if I could be really passionate about something. It would be telling some of these physicians out there, you just need to leave the big systems and start your own practice. Amen. Yeah, I love it. it. I love that, Carl. How would yeah. you answer it, Sean? I'm sorry? How would you answer the question you asked? <laughs> what fires me up? Yes. Um, well, what fires me up is, you know, educating and empowering consumers that they are in charge of their own health care. Right. And, and that means finding healthcare practitioners and it doesn't, you know, whether it be a pharmacist, whether it be a doctor um, or whether it be a nurse practitioner that are qualified to take care of them. And I, I can tell you, just because somebody is licensed, I talked about it earlier, does not mean they're qualified. And honestly, that also means doctors. I mean, there are a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot. I know of doctors that I would not want taking care of me. I don't feel they're qualified. Now, is it a personal issue with them as a doctor or is it the system they're in? And I will tell, you know, and I've been very vocal on my podcast about this. There are a lot of systems that unless there was an emergency, 
I would not choose to go there for sure because I just don't like the system because the system is what's broken. It's not necessarily the individuals. And I love Carl's opinion about really in order to get out of this, in order to fix the system, you got to get out of the system. And I'm just going to use a quote. It's not my quote. It's a quote from Dr. Keith Smith. I wrote a book on this subject not this exact subject, but just our subject of healthcare. I wrote a book called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And one of the fixes is, is patients need to educate themselves and be proactive in their own health. Okay. And then another fix is that us as healthcare providers, no matter what title is behind our name, we need to stand up against the system. And we had a comment from somebody on Facebook. And please, all, all of our guests today, please go to my Facebook page and look at those comments. And please reply if you would. Um, and, and really, here's, here's what I'm taking a quote out of my book, on the cover of my book, one of the quotes is from Dr. Keith Smith. He's an anesthesiologist that is the co-founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and I think he is a revolutionary when it comes to free market medicine. He got out of the system in 1997, and here's why he got out of the system, because he said he felt like an accessory to the crime. And I, and I, used, to, I used to protect my colleagues as pharmacists that were in the system and perpetuating the system. Um, but anymore, after Dr. Keith Smith educated me, I feel that you can't fix the system. The only way for us as healthcare providers to fix the system is to get out of the system um, is what I really feel. So that's what drives me passionately. Does that answer your question, Dr. Newman? Very well. <laughs> that people are qualified, that they may be incompetent. You don't like incompetence. Because That's right. And, and, you know, we've got a comment from um, Neil Sue, who I don't know, um, and Lindsay just posted up there, license doesn't equal competence. And, right. and here's one of the things about patients. And this is why, honestly, I, I could talk about this forever. I have a passion for this. But, you know, <laughs> we all probably could. <laughs> right. We are so we give out licenses so easy in in all of our medical fields. I'm not saying so easy, but. It, it seems no, like there's a lot easy. of people that are licensed that are not competent, but you know what? Our patients don't know that. Right. They they see doc they see Joe Blow pharmacist license and they think they're competent. Right. Well, I will tell you, do you think the big corporate pharmacies? Do you think they care about the competency of their pharmacist? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. The only thing they care about when they hire them are you licensed? Oh, you're licensed. You're hired. Right. And you know that sounds pretty powerful, but believe me and i'm sure you guys as doctors have worked with some pharmacists and you wonder how they got through pharmacy school i mean i know i talked to them i'm like i just i can't believe this person got through pharmacy school you know but they're licensed so <laughs> our patients think well this guy's competent and that's just absolutely not true so thank you guys for being on today go ahead dr newman i think that's why what you're doing is important when you say when you empower yeah, educated patient is an empowered patient and you're empowering them because they don't know if they're not incompetent, but they now know that they have to ask questions. They have to delve a little deeper. You cannot make assumptions anymore. And I think that what you do, that's why it's important. You're giving awesome. them that, that power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all for being on today. Um, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of great conversation. Please go check out my Facebook page and look at all the comments. There's a lot of good comments there. And I appreciate you all for being on today. Uh, that's going to wrap up our show. Uh, listeners and viewers, uh, 
follow follow us on on my YouTube site, Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy site. Also, catch us Monday, every Monday, one to two p.m. We stream live on my Facebook and the YouTube site. And Monday, we will have uh, Tasha Stafford and my twin brother Shane Needham, and we will be talking about how to work on your diet over the holidays so you stay on track. So tune into that Monday, one to two p.m. Uh, you've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you all for joining. Thank you.